as we're looking at the issue of life and how the church responds to be agents of life, I want us to look at briefly this morning, John chapter 11. And it's in John chapter 11 that it's a story that might be familiar to some. It's the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And it's in John chapter 11 that Jesus comes and he confronts death and darkness. And I think it's important for us to understand as a church, uh, for us to understand how does Jesus confront and deal with death and darkness, the reality of death, how is it confronted? And we see it here, John chapter 11 starting in verse 17. It says, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she met, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Go down to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When we talk about life, 
When we talk about matters of life and death at church, it is not a political issue. It's a gospel issue. You see, when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he did not say, hey, you will now be commissioned to do a lot of programs and events to pacify the people. Everything you do now as a church will be a matter of life and death. So when we address issues such as abortion, we do not do so as an issue that is political or an issue that is social, but it is a gospel issue because it is an issue of life and of death. And so how this morning I ask you, will the church respond to a matter of life and death? And how particularly does Jesus respond to this issue of life and death? He's confronted with the death of his friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, living in Bethany, two miles away from Jerusalem. How does Jesus himself deal with the reality of death? He responds in four ways. The first way that Jesus responds to death is he comforts the people with truth. He comforts them with truth. He goes in into the situation and he sees that they're broken and they're hurting. And in the face of death, he reminds them this powerful truth. He says, I am the what? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Because Jesus understood if they fail to believe, if they fail to remember who God is and what his promises, they will never truly recover from this pain and from the brokenness and the darkness of sin and death. They need to be reminded with truth and God gives them truth through Jesus Christ. And see, we're tempted with issues of death and darkness, of pain, dealing with issues of fighting and standing with the vulnerables of our society, whether they might be the unborn or the orphan or the widow or the poor. The first remedy that we must give our community, the the first remedy we must give our people is truth. Beth Moore recently at a passion conference in Atlanta said this, you will watch a generation of Christians set the Bible aside in an attempt to become more like Jesus. It seems appealing to set truth aside. And stunningly, it will sound completely plausible. This will be perhaps the cleverest of all the devil's schemes in your generation. Sacrifice truth for love. And you will rise or fall based upon whether you sacrifice one for the other. Will you have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and love? And while it's tempting to ignore the truth of the word of God, while it's tempting to ignore the truth of the gospel, that is exactly how we respond to the pain and the brokenness and the darkness of sin and death. He comforts them with truth. I am the resurrection and the life. But Jesus moves on. Not only does he comfort this crowd facing death with truth, he also comforts them with tears. Verses 32 through 36, he sees them weeping. He sees them mourning. And what does it say? In verse 35, it says that Jesus wept. He wept so much that the crowd say, see how he loved them. See how he loved them. And I've often wondered, why did Jesus take the time to weep? After all, he knew what the 
final outcome would be, right? You might wonder, why does Jesus take the time? The world might look at this and go, Jesus, you're wasting your time. You know you're going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would you waste your time and weep? But see, that's the point. Jesus is perfect love. He is the epitome of love. And what he is doing is he is demonstrating love. This is how perfect love responds to death and to darkness and to brokenness. J.I. Packer once famously said, what is truth if it is not met with tears? So we cannot simply shake our fist at death and dying. We cannot shake our fist of the people being treated unjust, namely the unborn, without tears. And so I asked you this morning, when I read that stat that 60 million babies were, have been, have died because of abortion, did your heart melt? Did your heart break? Did it cause you to weep? You see, Jesus says, this is perfect love. Did Jesus have the satisfactory answer for them that day? Of course he did. Could have easily said, Martha, 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 Mary, come on, stop the crying. Wait till you see what happens in 10 minutes. No. He sees them weeping. And he doesn't give them pat answers. He doesn't say, let me tell you what's really going to happen in the next 10 minutes. Stop your crying. He just is still. And he weeps with them. Are we a church that weeps? Yes, a church that preaches the truth, but a church that knows what it means to weep with those who weep and mourn with those that mourn. He weeps because he is perfect love. He is love incarnate, love that has come down and gives us this beautiful picture. Yes, he preaches truth, but he also comforts them with love. He comforts them with truth. He comforts them with tears. But in verse 38, something happens. And I love this part of the story. It says in verse 38 that he was deeply moved when he came to the tomb. And it's unfortunate that we don't have the proper translation here. Because it's not deeply moved like he goes, that's pretty unfortunate that Lazarus died. The actual original translation means that a sound came out of Jesus, that of a wild animal. You can almost picture Jesus beating his chest, sounds of agony and rage coming out of him. Why? Because he is angry. There is a righteous anger that comes over him when he sees death. And Jesus comes to the tomb, not weak and mild, but he comes to the tomb as a conquering warrior. And he looks at the tomb and he says, death, you have met your match. Death, you have met your match once and for all. Death and sin and darkness, you will not have the final say. That the voices of the unjust, those that have been unjustly marginalized, the poor and the widow and the orphan and the unborn, their voices cry out, but it's not any louder than the voice of the one that cries out and is deeply moved, a righteous anger in the face of sin and death and darkness. Jesus comforts us this morning, not just with truth, not just with tears, but with a righteous anger. And says, death, you will not have the final say. Empty, the tomb will not win. 
I will conquer sin and death. He is our conquering warrior who comforts us with righteous anger. And lastly, he not only comforts us with truth and tears and anger, but he comforts us with an empty tomb. You see, in verse 41 through 44, Jesus performs this incredible miracle before the people. And he not only says that death will, not only says that death will not have the final word, but he actually says, remove the stone. And you can only imagine the reaction when the stone is removed and Lazarus walks forth. See, he comforts them that day with an empty tomb. And if there is not an empty tomb that day, and if there is not an empty tomb on Easter Sunday, we might as well go home. Because all of our work for the unborn, all of the work for those that have been marginalized by our society, all of the vulnerables in our community, our work means absolutely nothing if there is not an empty tomb that day. See, when Lazarus walks out of that tomb, it is a signal to the entire world that there is one that has conquered the grave, that brings life out of death, that brings light out of the darkness. And that is our hope this morning. The reason we are able to fight for the unborn and protect the lives of the unborn and vote for the unborn and stand with the unborn is because there was an empty tomb that day that gives us our hope, that gives us our confidence that we can go out into Fort Lauderdale and South Florida and Broward County and beyond and say, no, death will not have the final word. Death will not have the final verdict. We are people that stand for life because we have met the champion of life, Jesus Christ. So how do we know this is all true? How do we know this is all true? Well, one of the verses I didn't read in verse 53 in John chapter 11 says this. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. One of the most amazing things about this story is Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew exactly what the result would be. You see, what Jesus did that day is he interrupted Lazarus' funeral with his own funeral. What Jesus did that day is he knew if he raises this man from the dead, that surely they are going to put him to death. And that is how we know that this is true. I can't follow a man that is not willing to lay down his life, but a man who willingly lays down his life so that we live, I can follow that man. And that is our Jesus who says, you not only can have the promise of the empty tomb, but I will give you that promise and the hope of that promise and the confidence of that promise by me willingly laying down my life for you. What an incredible promise. The great substitution of Jesus Christ, that he would be willing to lay down his life for you. He dies so that you might live forever. And that is our promise this morning. So how do we respond? How do we respond? You've heard this testimony from Nancy. You saw baby bottles as you walked in. We're talking about a subject that for some of us might be a little uncomfortable talking about in church. And what I want to press upon us this morning is that this is an issue that is a gospel issue 
because we are ambassadors and agents of, for life and of life, because we've met the champion of life, we can now go out from this place extending life to others. So how do we get involved and how do we respond? Four things. I want you to pray. I want us to pray like we've never prayed before. If this truly is not just a political issue, if this is not just a social issue, but a gospel issue, and if it's true that the Paul in Ephesians tells us that this battle is not against flesh and blood, then it is a spiritual battle and it will require this church on its knees praying for this issue. So I challenge you and encourage you to pray. Pray for Nancy, pray for Lori, pray for Hope Women's Center. Pray that we would live out our vision to bring hope to South Florida, to those that are hurting and those that are vulnerable. Pray. Second thing, be informed. Know the facts, know what's going on so that you can engage your culture, so that you can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Be informed, know what's going on. There's incredible resources out there for you to understand what's going on and how this is bigger issue than you even realize. Be informed. Third thing, get involved. Volunteer. Support, give, whether it's Hope Women's Center or Broward Right to Life or just partnering with our church, opening up our doors, opening up our homes for moms with unplanned pregnancies, opening up our, our, our doors and, 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 and letting people know that this is a place that you might feel welcome, grabbing a baby bottle on the way out, supporting these ministries here in South Florida and Broward County. Get involved. Be part of the solution. We can no longer just shake our fist at abortion and call it murder. That is identifying the problem but not addressing the solution. We have to be involved. We cannot just simply identify the darkness. We also have to be the light. Shame on us if we shake our fist at the issue of abortion and do nothing about it. Opening up our homes, fighting for the rights and standing for the orphan and for the marginalized and for the unborn. Get involved so that we can be a beacon of hope and light for the women in this community facing difficult circumstances. Lastly, point four, fourth thing to do, get ready to carry out a ministry for the weary and the heavy laden. Get ready to carry out a ministry for the weary and the heavy laden. Because if we pray that we would be part of the solution, get ready for this church to open wide its doors to say, this is a place of rest for you. 72% of teenage girls that were polled said church is the last place, not the second to last place, the last place I would go with advice for unplanned pregnancies. It is the last place that I would go. Let's change that to be the most loving, the most gracious, the most compassionate place where women sitting here with us in our worship services, walking through our aisles, living life with us would say, Church is the first place I go. That place is safe. That place is a refuge for me. There are women sitting in this church, I know it because you've told me, that have had an abortion and have never had the courage to come forward and say, this is what I've done because you have not seen church as a safe place. I Number one, I want to repent of that and ask for forgiveness. 
on behalf of the church that this has not been a safe place to come and share and bear your burdens. But number two, let's change that paradigm. Let's change that message so that Coral Ridge is known as the first place that people come to with an abortion. We are the first place that people come to with unplanned pregnancies, that this is truly a place of hope, a refuge, a ministry for the weary and the heavy laden. I ask you this morning, is this a place of great compassion? we have worshipped and encountered the champion of life, we now can go out and be champions, ambassadors, agents of life, giving people, even if it's a glimpse, that the best is yet to come, even giving people a glimpse of heaven, giving people a glimpse that God is making all things new, that is what we're called to as a church, to be agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of renewal saying in the midst of death and dying and darkness, you can have hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. 2011, 285 girls, ages 9 through 12, gathered in the town square of Mumbai. All 285 girls had the same name, Nakusha. Nakusha in Indian means unwanted or unworthy. You see, they were the products of a system and a society where girls were easily discarded, either aborted or left to fend for themselves as orphans. And through several agencies, they gathered all 285 girls named Nakusha unworthy. And they said, you come that day at noon in 2011 because you are going to receive a new name. And the girls came that day, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, new dresses, braided hair, because they were going to receive a new name. And some of the girls that day picked names like this, worthy, beautiful, life-giving. One of the 10-year-old girls was asked after the ceremony, weeks after the ceremony, what was that experience like? She said, I dreaded going to school every day because my teacher and my classmates called me by my name, which reminded me how unworthy I was. But now that I have a new name, all I can do is smile. You see, that's what we do. We go out from this place and we give people a new name. We give them the name life and beautiful and worthy. Those that have been marginalized, those that have been forgotten, those that have been treated unjustly. And we say through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can have a new name. You're no longer unworthy. You are the favored child of God. What a great promise. What a great calling. You know what my dream is? I have children. And by God's grace, I pray they have children. And my dream is that my grandchildren one day will come up to me 
and they will say, what were they thinking? That this church would make such a mark in this community and such an impact in this community that my grandchildren would talk as if abortion is a distant memory and they would talk about it as if they could never imagine it happening again. That is my dream and I pray that that is your dream as well, that we would be a church that would be ambassadors and agents of life, reconciling people and renewing all things.